reading this morning is taken from John chapter 18, starting at verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep them warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogue or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas, sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. 
one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Amen. Father God, as we come to your word now, we just ask for your spirit's help to understand it in our minds, to apply it to our heart and life. And that, Lord, as we were saying at the very start, that we would marvel at your beauty and your glory. Father, show us Jesus this morning, we pray, for we ask it in his name. Amen. 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 Do you recognize this face? His name is Joachim Guzman, who is more famously known as El Chapo Guzman, which means Shorty Guzman. He became Mexico's top drug lord in 2003 and is considered the most powerful drug trafficker in the world. It is believed that he and his associates built 90 underground tunnels that run from Mexico into the United States for the sole purpose of drug smuggling. El Chapo, over the years, has been arrested a few times and been imprisoned, but he has this canny knack of getting out. He once escaped through a prison laundry cart, and most famously back in prison in 2015, he stepped into this shower in his prison cell in the most secure wing of the prison and vanished. Prison guards later discovered a small hole in the shower unit leading to an underground tunnel and through which he escaped. And he was on the run for six months, hiding out in parts of Mexico. That was until eventually the Mexican special forces caught up with him. And even though he tried to escape, he was arrested after a long gun battle in January 2016. When someone like this is arrested, it's always resistance time. It's always chaotic, uncontrolled, and anything can happen, can't it, at any given moment. People can be shot. Others can be affected by it. However, when it comes to the arrest of Jesus in the Bible passage that you have in front of you in John 18 this morning, one of the things that stands out in the narrative is control, planned, foreknown, in the way that Jesus faces his arrest. We're told in verse 4, do you see it? The following, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. El Chapo didn't know what was going to happen to him. But verse 4 tells us on the arrest of Jesus... He knows what's going to happen. And we've seen this knowledge of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John and how he has always foretold of his death, how he has told his disciples what's going to happen to them. We've seen how Jesus, who told them who would betray him, who would deny him, all before it happens. And now that we're into this passion narrative proper, we see Jesus in complete control over events, people, and time. Nothing that occurs over these next few hours of Jesus' life is going to take him by surprise. Everything that happens is going to be either a fulfillment of what he said he would do in the past. Be clear this morning in what you see in this passage and over the next few weeks in John's Gospel. Jesus is no victim. He is in total control of his own arrest, his trial, and even his death. That's why Newbigin says this, Jesus is portrayed not as the passive victim, but as the majestic and sovereign initiator and master of all things that takes place. How is that possible? 
how is it possible that Jesus can control all this? How he can take it in his stride and foreknow? Surely he's just a person like you and me. Surely he's just flesh and blood. You and I don't know when we will die. You and I barely know if we'll be arrested. I had an embarrassing moment during the week. I got pulled over by the cops. It was a surprise to me. I don't think it was a surprise to him. But we don't know, do we? And yet, how come Jesus knows? Could it be that the author of John's gospel here is telling us and wants us to believe that this is the Son of God, that this is God? That's why he's able. Come and see for yourself this morning this Jesus who is in control as we look at these passages. Verses 1 to 11, in the olive grove, Jesus, see at verse 17, the start of it, having finished the prayers in John chapter 17, he now leads his disciples across the Kitron Valley to the other side where there's an olive grove. It appears from verse 1 and verse 4 that this olive grove may have been walled or enclosed. In verse 2, we're told that this olive grove was a familiar spot that Jesus and his disciples would have met at, maybe a favorite spot that they gathered in. And when they're in this olive grove, Judas comes. The last time we heard about Judas, back in chapter 13, verse 30, was at the Last Supper. And the very last words are said is that Judas, as soon as he had taken the bread from Jesus, he went out and it was night. Judas left Jesus and his disciples that night under the cover of darkness. And yet we see his reappearance here in John 18, again under the cover of darkness. The darkness is night but it's also carrying that symbolic evilness, that betrayal. Judas left under the darkness, and now he reappears at night. Judas knew this grove as a former place where his disciples and Jesus met, but he's not alone this time, as verse 3 says. He came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees that were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. He's leading a posse, a detachment of Roman soldiers but also temple officials. We're not told how many soldiers there are, but you can imagine that these soldiers were in Jerusalem to keep order, to keep peace. And so if they came, they didn't come underhanded. They came with enough to quell any kind of a rebellion. It would have been enough manpower to quell a revolt or any disorder if needed. And verse 3 highlights the fact that both Jewish and Roman officials were concerned with this. The Romans are worried about civil order. The Jews are worried about the claims that Jesus has made. And you know, one commentator puts it like this. He says, common foes generate strange friendships. The Jews hated the Romans. They were occupying their land. Yes, they gave them liberty, but they hated them. And here you see two of them in bed together as foes, enemies against God, and they are generating a friendship. And we'll see later in chapter 19 why that is. The Jews couldn't prosecute Jesus for claiming to be God under Roman law, so they needed some accusation that would bring the Romans in. And so if you claim to be a king or in allegiance against Caesar, that brought the Romans' ears in and brought them in. But as this posse came to the grove led by Judas, notice in verse 4, who makes the first move and asks the first question? Who is it? Look, it is Jesus. Jesus is no El Chapo running from the law here, looking to go down a tunnel like a drenched rat. No, instead, verse 4, Jesus went out, it says, and asked them, who is it you want? To which they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. But look at what happens in verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, I am he. And they drew back 
and fell to the ground. If I said to you this morning, I am he, there'd be none of you falling back. You'd probably laugh. And yet, verses 5 and 6, something happens here in verses 5 and 6. Were they surprised at Jesus' honesty or his frankness or his lack of fear in meeting this mob? It's probably unlikely. There were hardened soldiers, many of them. We're not given any direct explanation here in the verses as to why this happened. But consider this. Jesus identifies himself as I am. We know from the Old Testament, from our Exodus passage that we looked at earlier, that when God and Moses met, Moses said, if the people ask me who you are, God, who will I say you are? And God said this to Moses to tell the people. He said, tell them this, Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. You see, I am is the personal and sacred name for God. And when Jesus comes into the world of those who knew these Old Testament passages, he says to them, I am. Seven times in the teaching of Jesus in John's gospel, he says, I am the way, the light of the world, and the bread of life, and the way, the truth, and the life, and the vine, and the resurrection and life, the good shepherd, the gate, I am. Jesus identifies himself as God, the I am, the personal and sacred name. On one occasion in John's gospel, Jesus spoke the following to the people. He said this, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed, they loved their father Abraham. Before Abraham was ever born, I existed, I am. And this was the reaction of the people at this. They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple. They get this. They get the fact that Jesus identifies himself as God, and they seek to stone him. They are angered at this man, Jesus of Nazareth, for calling himself God. And so when we come into John 18, verses 5 and 6 again, Jesus says, I am he. And I take it that there is something of Jesus' divinity and majestic nature disclosed here, even though it's not explained. We see them draw back and fall to the ground. Are they in the presence of God here? As he says to them, I am. Because in the Old Testament, when people met God, they fell face down and worshipped him. They were struck by his divinity, by his majesticness. And here's what Bruce Milne said, which I think is very helpful. He writes, whether something of Jesus' divine majesty breaks in upon them for a moment, or they experience a sudden wave of terror as they're faced with laying hands on the one who has supernatural power, we are not told. And we're not told. Either way, there is a perceptible loss of control on the authorities' part. These are Roman soldiers. Did they have, for that moment, see the presence of God? And the situation is only brought under control by verse 7. Do you see it? Jesus has to ask them a second time, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I am he. Jesus in total control of his own arrest, but then he seeks to secure the freedom and liberty of his own disciples by saying to them, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. He goes out and he says this to them. And John, do you see it? Is quick to remind us that Jesus is fulfilling scripture even in doing this action and words from John 6, 39, where Jesus was not losing any of them whom the Father had given. Their interactions with others, these events, they spoke of fulfilling of scripture, the purposes and plans of God. Jesus' actions and words show that his impending arrest are all within his sovereign plans and purposes. God is always in control. 
you ever think about that? That he is always sovereign. He is always working out his purposes and plans. But I wonder, are most of us like Simon Peter? You know, because verses 10 to 11, whether Peter felt helpless or whether he felt he had to do something. Do you ever get to that situation in your life with a situation in your family, in your work, and you believe that God is sovereign? You believe his purposes will be worked out. But you know what? You feel helpless and you feel, I have to do something. Are you at that point? The theory is great, but the practice is hard. And here, good old Simon Peter, in verses 10 to 11, do you see it? Helpless. Felt he had to do something. Peter steps in. It's in his nature, isn't it? So he drew a sword. Do you see it? Probably a dagger-type knife. And he cuts off the ear or the ear lobe of a servant of the high priest called Malchus. See the detail? Is Peter to be commended for his bravery or his stupidity? But listen to what Jesus says to him in verse 11. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Who's in control? Who's directing operations here? He says to Peter, who thinks, I need to do something. I need to prevent this from happening. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup the Father has given Jesus to drink. On Friday, St. Patrick's Day, there were a few cups that were given, weren't they, and drunk from. Let me, let me just do a little recap. What a weekend of sport it was. The Dublin Outfit uh, football team, Kula, if you ever heard of them, some South Dublin, posh side of Dublin, won the All-Ireland Hurling Club Final at Croke Park. And then you have Inst winning, all right, which I brought a picture up here for all those who are from that background. St. Mary's Macrafelt won, Grosvenor won, all received cups, and I can tell you, having been in, in football team, they drank from them that night, filling them with Ribena, of course, and drinking them off. But that's what they did. The cups were received, and they were drunk from. And the cups were taken here, and in verses 10, 11, Peter tries to prevent the arrest of Jesus, which eventually leads to Jesus' death. And Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen, he says, the Father has given me a cup to drink from. But what is this cup? In the Old Testament, this cup idea was drank, it was the wrath of God. So if you had a cup in your hand or the wrath of God, it was to be drank. Listen to these verses. It says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you've drained, have drained it to the dregs, the goblets that men stagger. And then in this one, it says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with my wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I shall send drink it. It was the idea of drinking the wrath of God as he took the cup. The Jews of the first century and even today use four ceremonial cups in the Passover fest festival. Cup number three was taken after the completion of the meal, focusing further on the salvation of the Lord from judgment. And so when the cup is mentioned here in John's gospel, it is speaking about God's wrath, his anger, his judgment for sin that has to be atoned for. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, which John doesn't account for, we read that, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus here is aware that he has to drink the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And the reason he has to drink it is so that you and I don't have to. The cup of God's wrath. God the Father sends his beloved son into the world to drink the cup for us. And when Jesus drank the cup 
of God's wrath. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. He firstly said, I thirst. And then he said majestically, it is finished. He had drunk the dregs of the cup of the wrath of God. Why? Not for his own sin, but for the sins of you and I. He says these things because he is giving his life as a ransom for our sins. Jesus drinks down to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God, ordained by God for his son. This is why Jesus doesn't resist arrest. He is doing the will of his Father, completing the work of God in this world. Folks, if you're here today, this is good news for us. Because Jesus drinks the wrath or the cup of God for us. Instead, most of us think, you know what, I'll be all right. I'll do my best. You know, I'll face God on my own. But take it over these next few weeks. Let's marvel at Jesus drinking the cup for you and me. He drinks down to the dregs. Have you ever finished the dregs? It's awful, isn't it? If you're in any sort of drink at all and you drink the bits and it's just stink, it is rotten. And Jesus does that for us at the cross of Calvary for our sins. And this takes us to the next section of verses 12 to 27. Follow with me in these verses. Firstly, note the structure of these verses, which is important. John, the author of the gospel here, weaves two stories. The story of Jesus being questioned by Annas, I think it's how you pronounce it, and the story of Peter's denial. And he does it deliberately, deliberately. Do you see it there? Even in the breakdown of the passage, which is somewhat helpful. Verses 19 to... Um, Sorry, verse 15 to 18, you have Peter's first denial. Then you have the questioning of the high priest. And then we come back into Peter's second denial. And they're weaved like that in between. And the structure is important, and we'll see why later. But let's see why. Firstly, Jesus and Annas in verses 12 to 14 and 19 to 24. Verse 12 tells us he's arrested and bound and brought before this this former high priest. He wasn't the high priest at the time. He's like the godfather, the power behind the throne. And this high priest was well known. He had five sons who held the role. And even his current son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the current high priest. There's been a bit of a family dynasty going on here. And so it's not surprising that Jesus has brought this high priest, this former high priest, because he's like the godfather. And we see in verse 19 that Jesus is questioned about his disciples and his teaching. In verses 21 and 20 and 21, Jesus tells him that he has taught openly and publicly and that nothing has been done in secret. So Jesus asks, why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely you know what they say. For these words, Jesus receives a blow from the official. Ask questioning his tone to the high priest. And again, Jesus takes the initiative, do you see? And asks the official, what have I done? If I've done anything wrong, what is it? What these verses highlight, and it will be a theme that will run through the rest of these chapters of John's gospel, is the theme that Jesus is innocent and has done nothing wrong. You will see that permeate all the 19 and 20 of these chapters. Secondly, that the trial and accusations against Jesus are unjust and unfair. When someone was in trial in Jesus' day, witnesses were brought in to collaborate the, the claims against them, not the accused. It was the opposite way around nearly for us. We bring in the accused and we question them. Witnesses were brought in to substantiate the crime and accusation. And that is why Jesus in verse 21 says, I need a fair hearing, a just trial. Ask those who witness against me. But then Ananias sends Jesus, still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus is questioned. 
and he denies nothing. But weaved in between the narrative of Jesus and this account with the high priest is the account of Peter's denial. Follow with me. Verse 15, Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. And when they were arrested, they go into the core private residence of Ananias. This other disciple is not named. I take it that this is John himself. The detail is too specific. John's dad may have had a business in Jerusalem which allowed him this kind of lax of leeway into the high priest's house. But they both get in, and Peter gets in too in verse 16. And once in the courtyard, Peter the Galilean is asked in verse 17, do you see it by the girl on duty, famous story, are you not one of his disciples? To which Peter says, I am not. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not associated with him. The first denial in verse 18 at the fire in the courtyard at night where Peter is warming himself. Now look at verse 25 where John takes up the account again of Peter's denial. And where are we? Warming at the fire. This is a charcoal fire and Peter is warming himself. The stories are weaved. Tell a bit of the questioning. Peter's denial, the fire, linking back to the fire and back to the questioning. And you know what? As a side, this fire with Peter, when will we see it again? Chapter 21. After the denial, where does Jesus and Peter meet? At the fire cooking fish, where he's restored three times. But here we see Jesus' disciple Peter denying him, I'm not. And the heat literally gets hotter for Peter in verse 26 because a relative of the man who Peter cut off his ear is in the courtyard. And he says to him, didn't I see you in the grove? And verse 27, Peter denied it again. And at that moment, the cock crows three times. Peter, at that moment, as the cock hurled it in the morning, must have remembered Jesus' words back in chapter 13, that he would deny him three times before the cock crowed. Peter, back in chapter 13, didn't believe Jesus but it was, it was coming true here. Jesus' words are always true. Peter thought he knew better. No, that'll never happen. I'll never deny you. But Jesus knew better. And here it is. John's gospel doesn't mention the fact that the other gospels tell us that Peter denied he knew Jesus with curses and swearing. John's gospel doesn't mention the fact that the cock crowed, or when the cock crowed, he went out and he wept bitterly. John doesn't include these parts of what happened, and it's done intentionally, and it is for this reason, and I want to finish on this this morning. John leaves out things, and he deliberately weaves the questioning of Ananias and the questioning of Peter for, by others because he wants us to see the huge contrast that are shouting out to us as readers. Bruce Milne in his commentary says this, Jesus is center stage and directs the events. Peter on the one hand, is trying to prevent these events from happening by violence. Jesus is committed to this path of arrest, denial, and death, for it is the work and purpose of God. Contrast. Peter is questioned, and he denies everything, while Jesus is questioned, and he denies nothing. Who's in control this morning? In chapter 18, it is Jesus because he knows what he's about, he knows that he is sent from God, the one who is God himself, the one who is innocent, the one who will give his life for us at the cross. And by dying, he will complete the work his father has called him to do.
John 18 isn't about Peter. Sad and all as that story is, it's not about the Romans or the Jews. It is about putting Jesus center stage and seeing him direct everything for the sake of people like you and I. And that's why it should leave us praising him, marveling at him and his glory. Let me pray as we continue this morning. Father God, we thank you this morning for this passage in John's Gospel that puts Jesus in center stage and sees him directing all that happens, fulfilling his own words that he spoke, completing the work of God. Father, we marvel at your son today, that he is the one who was sent, that was obedient, that we will see will drink the dregs of the cup of wrath that you have for sinners. And Father, today we just stand back and we go, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he is doing here. Thank you, Lord, that this is all about bringing glory to your name and for the sake of those you have given him. Father, we thank you for him, and we pray that you'll help us to see over these next few weeks more and more of the Son who is the Son of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.